Dear Lord, as we begin our study in these books of Kings, we ask for the blessing of understanding and uh, interaction and participation that leads to uh, greater grasp of all that you are always doing, what you were doing then, how it relates to now, and to just walk away this morning having felt like we learned some good things that, uh, that, that get us additionally excited about you. Amen. So, we are back in the Old Testament survey this week and next week, and then the following week, probably on the, on the 30th, we'll, we'll do something different. We'll be one of those sort of novelty kind of weeks. Um, so, let's call this study of First Kings, Could This Be the One? Mm-hmm. Could this be the one, right? Because the great expectation that somehow the Abrahamic promise is going to be fulfilled through the Davidic line, right? So, through the lineage of David, there's going to come a king. And that king is going to usher in, you know, the great age. And that is the only way that the, Messianic, uh, that the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled. God promised through Abraham to have a people for himself. Um... And that Abraham would be the father of many nations, and then through the Davidic, through that lineage, <clears throat> that great king would come that would be bringing in all that God had initially set up and planned from the very beginning. So, plan A is still in place. Um, so, the, the two books of Kings, again, like Samuel and like Chronicles, were originally one book uh, that became, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, which became our two books. Uh, again, probably just because of the size of the way scrolls are carried around and, and the weight of them. Uh, and you can fit a lot more in this. And you recall, as I mentioned last time, that scrolls are pretty heavy things. You couldn't put all this stuff that's in two books like Samuel and two books like Kings all into one scroll. It was just too big. So that's, that's how we got broken up. And then we just put it all together in our scriptures. And basically covers the time frame of the history of Israel from the death of David somewhere around 931 B.C. to Jehoiakim's release from prison. Jehoiakim was another king, another king uh, who was, had been taken away to Egypt captive. Uh, but at the very end of 2 Kings, as you'll see, uh, might get touched on next week, um, he's released from prison to dine with kings, all the rest of the, all, with the king all the rest of the days of his life in about 562 B.C. So it's about a 400-year period of time that we're talking about. So, so that and that you'll see then at the end of Kings with with all the tragedy and horror and evil of the kingship and the utter failure of Israel in its calling, yet we still see that little glimmer of hope when uh, we see a, a king of Israel released from a, a pagan king, and that gives us some indication that uh, all is not completely lost. So we know that the Hebrew, the Old Testament, was divided into three sections. What is it called in the Old Testament? What, what did Jesus refer to the Scripture as? The blank, the blank, and the blank. The law, the prophets, and the writings. That sound familiar? The law and the prophets and the writings are the ways that the, the Hebrew uh, uh, Old Testament refers to the Scriptures. Where do you suppose king falls in? Either a law, a prophet, or writing? What think ye? Writings. That's what I would say as well. It's actually considered one of the prophets. In fact, they considered the former prophets. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are all considered prophetic writings. They're referred to as former prophets versus the latter prophets. And why do you suppose that they're considered part of the prophets? Well, 
there's a lot of prophetic action happening in Kings. There's as much going on with the prophets as there are the kings. See, the other thing is we, 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 we speak in terms of historical books. So we have like an extra division in what we call the Old Covenant, right? We talk about the law, the wisdom books, we talk about the writings, and we talk about the historical books. They don't break it out as such. But you have Nathan, Ahijah, Jehu, Micaiah, Isaiah, Huldah, the prophetess, and several unnamed, and of course, who are the two big prophets in the books of Kings? Who are the babies? It's easy to get their names confused. Oh, Elijah and Elijah. Yeah, right, right? And it's easy to get kind of confused with sort of who does what. Uh, but Elijah does come first. So, what, 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 what is the role of a prophet, by the way, in the Old Testament? What, what, what does a prophet do? Why do you suppose? So, so, if you know what the role of a prophet is, you understand why this, these books from Kings, uh, Joshua through Kings, are considered the former prophets. Why, what's the role of a prophet? Yeah, Ken. Speak God's word. Yeah, to, to speak, to speak on behalf of God, right? So it's not it's not just the fact that it has not nearly as much to do with just sort of predicting the future. Although they do that, they do talk about things that are going to happen, but they speak for God. And in this, and in these instances, they are consistently coming. God is consistently sending prophets to His people to warn, to instruct, to direct. Right. Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who stones the prophets and kills though I send to you. Right? That's what he's always done. He has always sent a voice. He has always given a word. Consistently, despite Israel's failure after failure after failure, the very fact that God raises up a prophet and sends it to them. The same is true of us. The fact that we have a, a gospel witness that we're willing to and hopefully able to and willing to be able to impart to the unbelieving world in the variety of ways that we do that. We are that ongoing witness. We are what God intended Israel to be, that witness to the nations about who God is, the lordship of God, the lordship of God, God's righteous rule over his kingdom, right? Remember the hermeneutic key that's guiding us through our Old Testament survey. God's righteous rule over his kingdom, man's response to God's righteous rule, and then God's response to man's response. And one of those responses is to continue to send more prophets. In addition to all the other many things that God does to send, chastening and increasing severity upon Israel, he also continues to send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. The book of Joshua through Second Kings is sometimes referred to as Deuteronomic history. Deuteronomic history. Okay? Owing to the clear references that we see and what the prophets are saying and what the kings are doing to the book of Deuteronomy, which is important. Why? What was going on? In the, what's the book of Deuteronomy? Anybody remember anything about Deuteronomy? Anybody remember what the name Deuteronomy refers to? Yeah. Second law. Yeah, right. It's that sort of second law. It's the second giving of the law it's being given to the people. Uh, remember, there was a whole generation destroyed. And now there's another generation about to enter the promised land. And so they have to receive the law the same way. God's not going to change his way. Right? God's not going to change the way he reigns and rules just because man uh, muffs it up. Right? So, there's a lot going on. We'll, we'll see little additional pieces and details of that as we go on. You know, that sort of reference back to Deuteronomy. Uh, so, it, this is really... And so, you, you also see throughout King's record of the reigns of kings and the author alternates back and forth between 
the northern and southern kingdom, right? And pointing out, okay, while while X was king of Judah, Y was king of Israel, right? And while the reign of such and such was going on, such and such became king of Judah. And the 17th year of the reign of X in, Ju- in Judah, you know, Y became, you know, began to reign as king in, in, in Israel. And then ultimately, right, ultimately we're going to see, we're going to see both kingdoms go into exile. We'll, we'll talk about, what do you mean by both kingdoms? We'll talk a, bit, a little bit about that. And so, the, the big question then, especially with Israel going into exile, whew, man. So, so the big question with Israel being taken away in exile, <coughs> and the nation going to all at once, and I can't. The, the question that would naturally come up in the mind of the exiles, and the, this writer, whoever wrote this, and it's unknown who wrote it, some people, some insist Jeremiah wrote it, and others insist someone else wrote it, because Jeremiah, Jeremiah ministered during the time of the exile, but so the people, this was written during the time of exile, and part of the reason for doing this is, you know, exile did not show that Yahweh lacked power. Okay, this is from uh, Longman and Dillard's Old Testament survey. He said, exile did not show that Yahweh lacked power, just the opposite. It was the proof that he was ruling over history, and that the armies of Babylon were simply doing his bidding. The exile itself showed not that God had failed to keep his word, but that he had done what he had warned the nation he would do. Showing them exactly that God is still in charge, because that was the big question. Is God not in charge? Our nation is fallen. There's no, you know, the, the temple was destroyed in time. And so that would be the great question of people's mind in exile. Is, is this over? No, no. God hasn't failed. God hasn't failed. In fact, he's doing exactly what he said he would do. That should have been every sort of so he's giving them the impulse to say, well, wait a minute. If God's keeping his word on all the cursings, maybe keep his word on all the blessings for obedience, right? But our nature is such that we... The promise of blessing is not sufficient to keep us in God's will. And then, if you, if you remember back in Deuteronomy, so that before they were going into the promised land, you had all this blessing and cursing. And so in Deuteronomy 28... 15 through 68, we had all the warnings uh, of, of curses for disobedience, right? And that would be pestilence, dust instead of rain, defeat by the enemies, dead bodies eaten by birds, boils, scabs, madness of mind, wives raped by other men, cattle slaughtered, sons and daughters taken away, cannibalism, and ultimately exile and defeat. All that was promised by God, was committed by God, if the nation were to be disobedient, if it were to not follow him and his plan to establish his righteous reign and rule on the earth and to have Israel be the ones that bear witness to that righteous reign and that rule of God. Okay? So if that didn't happen, then this would happen. Okay? And in addition to the, to the laws, we see the prescriptions throughout Leviticus and De- Deuteronomy, throughout really the Pentateuch. God commands, this is very important, very important in Kings, because this is one of the things that gets corrupted that has a major impact and is what haunts all the kings of Israel, almost all of them. Because, yes? Could you give us an idea of the chronology? Like, when does the book of Kings begin and when does Second Kings end? Like, how much of a period of well, time? Well, so I did mention that. It's a 400-year period of time, okay, and it basically covers from 931 B.C., which is the death of David, to the release of Jehoiakim, 
from prison out of Egypt uh, about 400 years. So it's about 400 years of time, if I didn't. And there's about 200, well, actually about 150 years difference in time between uh, the northern kingdom being taken away, which we'll talk about, and the southern kingdom both being taken away in exile. And then there's the destruction of the temple, which will, if it doesn't get brought up next week, we'll come up in another book. So you are dealing with that 400 year period of time. Interesting period of time, right? 400 years? Ring a bell? Where, where else do we see 400 years? The uh, time between the Testaments. There is that too. Yeah, there actually is. There is about 400 years between the Testaments. Oh. You're right about that. 400 years of silence. Yeah, Justin. Um, 400 years Israel was in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, God was doing what it was that he was doing. God was doing something while Israel was in Egypt. He was bringing to completion uh, his actions against the Ammonites and a bunch of other things as well. God's always doing a lot of things at once. God's always literally killing more than you know more than one bird with one stone, right? So God commanded how and where we're supposed to take place. How God is worshipped and where in the Old Testament was of utmost importance. Right? God established that. Remember we talked about the fact that even Uzzah, who thought he was doing a good thing by reaching out to stare to the ark, boom, God took him out. You touch the ark, you're dead. God said the ark is to be carried on poles from place to place. Right? God was very particular. Why do you think God is like that? Is God just sort of ornery? Well, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that a, a stark uh, picture of His holiness? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is a picture of His holiness. It's altogether otherness. Yes, Justin. R.C. Sproul has a, a great book about us touching the ark okay. in his book, uh, The Holiness of God, where he, he says something to the effect of um, the reason why Uzza was condemned was because he presumed that his hand was less dirty mm. than the ground that the ark was. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, huh? Well, in our impulsive actions typically flow from what we fundamentally and ultimately believe, right? So, for us to reach out and do that, right? You would think, okay, as they go, first of all, you would have thought, as we're going along with this with this thing being pulled by cattle, if Uzzah was mindful of the will of God and the holiness of God in advance, you would have thought, hey, wait a minute, man, this isn't the way that we're supposed to be transporting the ark. So, we tend to act, in, although I won't say exclusively this way, but we do tend to act impulsively from the position, from that place in our mind that we believe things to really be, you know? Well, Sometimes we'll act totally contrary to our nature out of like a fear or something, but what we really believe will come out in those impulsive moments, yes. Isn't it a sense that uh, somehow we're going to help God or save, in that case, save the ark? Or... Yeah, you know, it's a good point. He probably thought he was doing a good thing. You know? Yeah. And, and that same principle applies here in throughout the book of Kings. Every single king failed to acknowledge God's prerogative in establishing the who, what, one, where, how, and why of worship. Every single king failed at that and, and, until the temple was destroyed. Until God had to destroy the temple. Because he, the, the temple, as we'll, we'll take a look at, is the place where God established for his worship and fellowship, if that's going to be disregarded, then you clearly don't want to be with me. So, 
so David dies, uh, in, but in, before he dies, so we begin to see in the beginning of First Kings, there's a transition of kingship. Um, David is, is at the end, and now Adonijah tries to take the kingdom at first, right? And that doesn't end well. He ends up, he ends up getting taken out. He tried to, he wanted to get Abishag the Shunammite for himself. For in doing so, that would be a way of saying that since I got the king's woman, especially his last woman, the one that was sleeping with him last and sharing his bed, that wasn't just, that was a way of also acknowledging a conferral of power from one to another. So, and Adonijah was just one of them dummies in Scripture, you know. He should have just stayed put, should have stayed, he would have been fine if he would have just minded what he was supposed to mind. And then Solomon finished some of David's unfinished business. Okay, so there's kind of some political maneuvering going on here at the end of David's life, right? He's going to have Joab put to death. Remember, Joab has led the army for years until David put the armies under Abner. Joab didn't like that, so he had Abner taken out. He also had Amasa taken out. So David says, because of that, make sure you take out, make sure you, you put an end to Joab. Kill him. And then you remember that guy that was yelling at David as he was walking along, yeah, yeah. calling him a filthy this and that, and yeah. swearing and cussing at him and the equivalent of that. And David's guys were like, who's this dog? Let's take his head off. And David said, hey, maybe the Lord sent him to curse me. Leave him alone for now. Well, David says, remember Shimei yeah. to Solomon. He says, I know you'll deal wisely with I know that you will deal wisely with him, and eventually you'll bring his blood down to Sheol. And so initially Solomon says, Well, you gotta live here. You cross this line and you're toast. You don't go beyond this boundary. You go beyond this boundary and you're done. And the moron did. And so Solomon had him killed. So he takes care of some of that stuff. And then Solomon got off to a really good start, right? You remember God says, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want. Right? It's in so many words. You just ask and I'll give it to you. He says, give me a wise heart with which to judge your people. So, the prayer was, the request was great in two ways. One, it was for something uh, sort of intangible like wisdom. It wasn't for wealth. It wasn't for riches. It wasn't, it was for wisdom. And then it wasn't just wisdom for himself. It was for the benefit of other people so that I would know how to guide and judge your people. And that's the magnificent request. So Solomon is off to an excellent start. Well, what is wisdom, by the way? How would you describe wisdom? What is wisdom? Fear of God. Wait, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's exactly right. And if you fear God, that means you know certain things about God. And what you know about God is going to manifest itself in the way you act. Right? So wisdom can be... Practically described, then I guess as the, the the right application, the best application of knowledge. Right? There's one one guy calls it an artful method. Right? It's it's it's, it's more than knowledge. It's, it's being able to impart that knowledge and to take what you know and put it into effect in a way that's going to make maximum benefit. Right? So. So immediately we see the two women arguing over the baby. One woman says, hey, that's mine. And he says, no, that's mine. Solomon says, oh, just kill it. Yeah. Cut it in half and give it to him. Because right, he knew. He knew the real mother would never stand for that for a moment. And that's, that's exactly what happened. So, And the Queen of Sheba, remember, she came and she was blown away by his wisdom and his magnificence and, and all that stuff. And he builds the temple. Right? Remember that uh, it was God had promised David. He said, I'm not going to let you build it. Because you're a man of blood, but your son, 
will build it for me. So he takes seven years, and, and the temple is built. Now, you, you, the temple is the center of everything in Hebrew thought, right? In, and the way that it's built is reminiscent, and deliberately so, as God has it designed, all the particulars of it reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, where God meets with man. And this is why it brings up the golden question. Could this be the golden age with the promised king from David's line to whom that, that messianic king was going to come? And uh, 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 scholar John Shellhammer says, Genesis 1-2, because right now, God's not abandoning the Genesis project. That is ongoing. All the way to the end of the book of Revelation where you begin to see some of the same things with the leaves uh, uh, of the trees which are for the healing of the nations and the river which goes through it. You see in the book of Revelation everything that God had initially set forth to do in the book of Genesis and sin came in. So, uh, he says, Genesis 1-2, to uh, the author goes to great lengths to show that humankind was created to worship God amid the trees, animals, gold, and precious stones that God put in the garden. So the temple was designed to be a representative of that garden. Everything about it. All the different types of trees, all the animals, all the stones, all that stuff. All had a specific purpose. God was saying, look, just as we had this wonderful place, he couldn't do it again in the garden because they were exiled. Right? They were tossed, man was tossed out of the garden. Right? So that they couldn't get at the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. So, so they're out of the garden. But God's still going to make a place where he meets with them, where worship can happen. This reminiscence of the garden. And all the magnificent, must have been a magnificent thing. When we talk about the temple, we read about it, but we can't possibly see it. We, don't, we, we can only imagine what it must have been like. Mm-hmm. It would be neat. I mean, it, it would cost a ton of money to build such a thing. I know that, who's those people that built the ark down south somewhere, right? A, a replica, to the best of the biblical knowledge, a, relic, a replica of the ark. Imagine building a Solomon's temple. It would be magnificent. So, it was to be magnificent. I mean, the place where God resides, you're going to think, is going to be a magnificent place. And all those things provoking the natural wonder of God, the creation, all that stuff, God wants us enjoying in His fellowship. All of it is intended for that. And in in chapter 8, He gives this magnificent prayer, or this prayer of dedication to the temple. And it's funny because the prayer actually anticipates the people sinning, being defeated, drought, pestilence, locusts. People pray. He says, if, if they, Solomon says, when this happens, if this happens, if your people sin, if they're defeated, if there's drought, if there's pestilence, if there's locusts and all that, if your people will humble themselves and face this temple and pray, hear from heaven and heal them and forgive them. Right? Even if they couldn't be there. At least if they, if they were to acknowledge the presence of God and turn to that and confess their sin and seek forgiveness, Solomon prayed, forgive them when they do that. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Right? In verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 46 through 50. If they sin against you, if there is no, and there is, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off and near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive, so even if they're in a foreign land, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their mind, and with all their heart, in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers, the city that you have chosen, 
and the house that I have built for your name. Then here in heaven you dwell and place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. They may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. And that's why in Daniel, you know, Daniel was praying. He was praying out the window facing Jerusalem. He was praying. I'm sure every day he prayed five times, whatever, but I'm sure he was also at times confessed this in Israel. Yes. And to go further on the point of Daniel, uh, this language about uh, the, the plea they make uh, in verse 47 we have sinned, we have acted, and mm-hmm. have acted perversely and wickedly. In Daniel 9, he prays. <clears throat> o Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for mm. those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong mm-hmm. and acted wickedly mm-hmm. and rebelled, yep. turning aside from your commandments. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. And so God, again, is making the way. He's making the way for that to happen. It's a great prayer. I mean, Solomon seems to have so much going for him. Right? Um, in, in chapter 8, verses 41 to 43, another great purpose of the temple. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, right, the Gentile, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So this is a prayer that the temple would serve the purpose that God had already decreed that Israel would be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And Solomon prays for this. However, obedience is necessary. This temple is not a magic formula. Right. Obedience is necessary. I'm going to pop over here to a second. Jeremiah. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust, do not trust in these deceptive words, quote, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't trust that. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old. Just because my temple is here and my presence is here, don't mistake that for your need to obey. To know that I am God and that there is no other. Yes. So they made it a, a talisman, essentially. And it just there is a sense in which, yeah, sure. And I think that uh, that's kind of a common thing among human beings is that just like they made a, uh, a talisman out of the, the, uh, the brass serpent, mm. they, they wanted to they worship that thing. And the, the, the whole idea that just because they are Israel 
and because God built this temple here, that therefore they were good to go. And, and, and so that's why God made the temple so had the temple made so elaborately, so it as good as anything could possibly do at that time would represent His presence among the people. Everything about it, all the separation of the rooms and the utensils and the, the holy of holy, everything, right? God designed it to say, if it were possible, in a sense, to capture in three-dimensional geospatial form my presence, this is what it would look like. And when he pulled it out of there, you see that in Ezekiel 2, the vision of the temple getting up and going, right? God getting up and going and the four spinning wheels and all that, God departing in Ezekiel. That's what's going on. He's done. And the destruction of the temple was to say, I'm done with you. You're toast. And what he said too, you know, he, he promised that they would be scattered among the nations. Oh yeah. And they they, they have been. Uh, I'm not sure what they think now about Israel being brought back together in 48. Well, as you know, in, in the body of Christ, even there's a lot of division over yeah. over over what that exactly looks like and how precisely we as a church should think in terms of political Israel and ethnic Israel and and how much will will there be a full turning of all Israel? I mean, those are all like points of yeah. departure. For Christians, you know, because we must needs have things to argue about. (laughs) (laughs) And then Solomon breaks every code possible for a God anointed king. Breaks every. And over in Deuteronomy, which is again, I mentioned earlier in the book, we consider this part of Deuteronomic history. Over in Deuteronomy 17, as it were, God happens to have some pretty specific instructions for what it's like to be a king of Israel. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around you, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only, (laughs) only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said, you shall never return that way again, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Solomon did every one of those things. He went to Egypt for those nice, beautiful Egyptian horses. He amassed, Scripture tells us, he had more gold and silver. In fact, silver became so common, it wasn't even a big deal. It was devalued. It was like the Americans printing dollar bills. It was... He did everything he was told not to do. It's just something, isn't it? The one that asked for wisdom to judge... And how did he get into it? Started messing around with foreign women. Entering into political alliances, marrying wives of kings, etc., so that he could increase his, his, his sphere of existence. A misunderstanding of what God had him doing. Oh, I must be able to take this message to others. I must be able to be the... If it's this good, I can imagine thinking in his mind, why not marry some of these others? Bring them under the, bring them under the attempt. Bring them under the umbrella. Well, wait a minute, you can't, you can't just do that your way. He was an idolater. Solomon was an idolater. And I've mentioned this before, the only difference between Saul and Solomon at the end of the day was God made a particular covenant that he would never break with the house of David. <laughs> That's the difference. In 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, <clears throat> 30-something through 74, my notes are sloppy here, I guess. 
you hear throughout the book of Kings this reference to the high places. Okay? The high places are not authorized by God for worship. And throughout these books of Kings, we see reference even to the good kings, that they kept the high places intact. Okay? They compromised worship. The high places were places where they would go and worship, even if it was worshiping Yahweh, the true God. It doesn't, you know, yeah, there was lots of false God worship in lots of these high places, which is up on mountains. Remember, too, mountains were always considered, and this is why Eden was on a mountain. Mountains in ancient thought were always the place where the gods met with the people. This is where heaven and earth came together, is the mountains. Okay? That's always, 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 always the case. Okay? That's just the way that they thought. That was where God and man met, was on the mountain. Is that the thinking behind, uh, oh, they got together and built that stuff. Yeah, sure. That was always the that was yeah. always yeah. That was always the thought behind yeah. the way they constructed things. We see Moses going up on the mountain. We see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't we still think that way? Yeah. Experience. Well, absolutely. Yeah. There's something yeah. to it. I mean, it's and it is because you know God gives us a way to make a again a three dimensional connection to a, a spiritual concept because it helps us to make that connection, right? I mean, the heavens aren't just up. The heavens are also down, right? I mean. I remember recently going through with my daughter, we had to talk about, you know, the earth, its, its shape and its sphere, and they had little pictures of kids standing all around on the earth, and some of them looked like they were upside down, right? So, yeah, it looks like they're upside down to there, but they're not upside down, right? And it's a hard concept, isn't it, right? Because you're on a sphere, and if you're standing at the bottom of the sphere, wouldn't you be upside down unless you're standing on your head? So we're trying to teach that concept, right? The heavens are everywhere, but it was helpful from a people that basically thought the earth was flat, they did. They thought the earth was flat. They thought that the earth would drop off, the sea monsters and all that stuff. That's why I talked about the four corners of the earth. Anyway, getting down a rabbit trail. So, uh, Ahijah prophesies that one tribe will be left for Solomon's family, his lineage, because, because of David. Right? And, and that is Judah. So, even though initially uh, Benjamin is and Judah are the two tribes that remain after the split we're going to talk about, only Judah is going to be the one and therefore, no, Solomon is not the son of David in the ultimate God-promised sense. Okay, He's not that one. He's not the Messianic one. He's not. This is in it. So after the death of Solomon, we have a divided kingdom. Okay, So the kingdom is divided. Remember, David had already, David had united because there was already a division when David became king. So he succeeded in, in, in uniting Israel. But now, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is divided when Rehoboam ignores the wise counsel of the older ones and goes with the obnoxious, arrogant insistence of the younger men who think they know it all, right? And their energy and everything else. And Rehoboam, because in his mind he can connect with the younger men better, says, yeah, you're right. You know what? I am going to... Because the people had come and they said, you know, hey, take it easy on us. Oh, I'm going to smile. My father, you know, I'm going to do this. And he did this. So he levies taxes on him. He gives him hard labor. And so Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, ooh, here's where, here's where Jeroboam comes in. He shows up several times in Kings, especially when you hear they sinned after Jeroboam, you know, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was a servant of Solomon, Jeroboam was, and he leads a split of the ten tribes. He says, after Rehoboam did what he did and insisted upon making things more difficult than they already were, Jeroboam says, what portion do we have in you, David? To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. And that was it. Only Judah and Benjamin are left. And then Rehoboam was going to go to war against the northern kingdom. And God said, nope, leave it alone. So, in 1 Kings 
we read, And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, I will give to Israel and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. This is to Jeroboam this is being told. All right? But what does Jeroboam do? Up in the northern kingdom, he says, well, probably somewhat concerned that people would be affectionate and want to maybe reunite with Judah because, I mean, that's where the temple is. He sets up two additional places of worship in Dan and Bathsheba and Bethel, I mean. And he introduces idol worship by putting two stinking golden calves, one in each one. The first thing he does. The first thing he does, reminiscent of Aaron. No other king undoes this in the north throughout its entire history. They keep these two places as well as a bunch of other lesser places to attack. And you should know that there is nothing good said about any of the 20 kings of the northern kingdom throughout First and Second Kings. Not a good thing to be said. And only eight of the kings of the southern kingdom in Judah have something positive about them. Because all the other kings are compared to the standard set by David. All of them. He's the standard by which they go. And, and, and none of them live up to it. And the kingdom is never reunited. Okay? I mean, to this day it's not. Because it's not, Israel is not now what it was then. There's no, there's no northern southern. When Jesus comes back and things happen and the whole world is. But it, that's, that was it. The kingdom became divided. So, there are several other kings, but let's get to the big one, right? Let's go talk about Ahab. Ahab's a big one, right? First Kings. What does Scripture tell us about First Kings? What does the writer tell us about First in First Kings sixteen thirty-one to thirty-two? And if and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, remember who had taught, who had introduced idolatry and brought idolatry. If, as if that wasn't enough, as if it was a light thing, as if he did it very flippantly, which he did, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served at Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal, or Baal, or however you want to pronounce it, like Baal, in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Okay? Ahab, let's go on here, and Ahab made an Asherah, which is a constructed a thing of worship. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. Okay? So, and, and you know, Jezebel, who was just a total nuisance in all this, she's part of the power behind Ahab uh, you know, doing what he does. She's a driving force in his life. And he is just set against... In fact, Eli- and, and, and then so, Elijah becomes the prophet that's constantly going against Ahab. All right? Remember, he challenges the 450 prophets of Baal to, come on down, let's see what you got. Right? And he mocks them. He's like, where's your God? You know, maybe he's going to the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Just sit around, just abusing him. A lot of similarity, interesting, a lot of similarity between Moses and Elijah. Uh, Elijah struck the waters of the Jordan, which divided so the people could cross. He called now fire from Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Moses, there was fire on Mount Sinai that God brought. There was fire on Mount Carmel when he called down fire to uh, burn up the sacrifice. Both of them were supernaturally fed. Uh, Moses fled in fear from Egypt initially. Elijah flees in fear from Ahab. Right? Moses is in the cleft of the rock. Elijah sees God pass by as he's in the cave. 
Moses had Aaron and Joshua. And over here in, in the New Testament, we had Elijah, had Elisha and Jay, and I'm sorry, in the New Testament, in, in Elijah's prophetic um, ministry, he had Elisha and Jehu. Okay? Each stood on the east band of the river Jordan at the end of life to pronounce things. Neither one of them has a burial place. So there's a lot of little things there. And one, one scholar said, for the writer of Kings, Elijah, like Moses, was a further example of the future prophet who was for the Pentateuch as well as for kings and messianic figures. So it's like God was keeping the promise alive in another person. So you remember that Moses, was pro- Moses said, there will be a prophet who comes after me, like unto me, who the Lord will raise up from among your brothers. And so they would naturally be wondering about any of these prophets. Right? Um, so God is sort of keeping that promise alive. Of course, they're not exactly the ones. We see similarities also in Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Okay, you'll hear about Elisha next week. Um, so you have these similarities of the ministries of Elijah, Elisha, and John the Baptist. So each wore camels here and wore a belt of leather. Each came up against toxic femininity. Right? <laughs> the main adversary being a woman. Right? So we have, we have Elijah coming up against uh, Jezebel. And we have John the Baptist coming up against who? Uh, Herodias, right? Yeah. Who sends a daughter. Uh, each anointed his successor in the Jordan River, right? So Elijah anointed Elisha, and John the Baptist anointed Jesus. Uh, Elijah received the double portion of the Spirit, whereas the Spirit of God descended on, descended on God's Son. When John the Baptist sent disciples to Jesus to ask if he was the one who was to come, Jesus replied, Tell John the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, Good news is preached to the poor. These are all the miracles that Elisha did. So Jesus was in effect telling John, Elijah's successor has come. I am the one you are looking for. For John the Baptist, you will recall, was the one that was the Elijah to come, right? So just like Elijah had a successor in Elisha, John the Baptist had a successor in uh, Jesus. Excellent. Isn't that neat? So, and then you have... All these other similarities in increasing proportion. So you had Elijah, seven miracles recorded about Elijah in First Kings. You have remember that Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit. Mm-hmm. Well, there are fourteen miracles recorded in Second Kings from Elisha, and then of course Jesus just has volumes of these miracles, right? Resurrections, provision of food, mm-hmm. control over the nature, forces of nature. Each did these, but of course Jesus did them in a different way. He could keep command what they prayed for, you know. So Jesus is far greater. So through these prophets in, in the books of Kings, it seems to me that God is the directing the attention of his people and sort of reorienting the perspective that they're losing through lost worship. So they're living in a such a way and they're, they're in exile and they're becoming disoriented and disconnected from God's plan that was revealed to them. Okay, and it's already been told them historically. It's supposed to be in past gone. But you remember too, there's a lot of things not happening at this point. There's no Passovers taking place. There's all, a lot of stuff. So they're becoming disconnected from all the promises and everything that God had put into place. To me, it's kind of like the four seasons. We have, we have a constant reminder that things are temporary and temporal and that there's something great to come. God continues to give us a taste and a promise of and reminders that the passage of time is coming to something. That other things, and I, I think he, I think of the prophets and the kings almost in that in that way. 
how God kept doing things through them and teaching his people things through them that were somehow reminding them and re-educating them and reorienting them to what's coming and trying to get them excited about that again, you know? I, so, I love the Four Seasons I, that, in New England. I do. I, people ask, wouldn't you like no? I love the bitter cold. I love blizzards. I, I love almost dying in the sweltering heat. I, I love all of it. I like all of it because it, because it changes and it transitions from one thing to the next. And you get those little like you get that you get those you know what we call Indian summer, and, and I'm sure that's politically incorrect now, but you get they call it Guardian summer, right? And in uh, and you get like early spring transitioning to summer. You get these transitional things happening in between. Um, I think God is doing that. God is doing that with these prophets and kings. It's consistently and always bringing us back to, to, that, to that sort of amazing promise. Um, I just want to touch on, I guess just the last thing, we have a few minutes left. At the closing of the chapter, so we see something happen here with... Uh, uh, in chapter 21, Elijah prophesies the end of Ahab and his line, and that Jezebel will be dog child. Okay, and, and she ends up that way too. Yeah. And finally, Second Kings, she is dog meat. All right, and that's got to be where the phrase comes from. Yeah, dog meat. So, in in uh, the final chapter here with Kings, we see something going on with Ahab that is unexpected, and it's 22 verses, chapter 22 verses. 25 to 29. Um, I'm sorry, chapter 21. I'm sorry, 21. Chapter 21, 25 through 21. There was none who sold himself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard all these words, everything Elijah told him about, what's, what's going to happen to you? And this is what's going to happen to your lineage. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Mm. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Mm. What a breath of sort of fresh air at the end of Ahab's life. Because in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful invitation and a hope for all of Israel in their captivity, in their exile. Because they're, they're reading this. Remember, this stuff is all sort of written after the fact, right? So they can see that even wicked Ahab repented and God had mercy on him, showed him some grace. Now as it is, Ahab ends up getting taken out by a so-called random arrow, right? But God, who is the architect of all coincidences, obviously arranged for that to happen. Right? So, uh, and then, and, and finally, but the last king that we see mentioned in Judah in the book of 1 Kings is Jehoshaphat, who was the son of Asa. And he did good, he says, in the eyes of the Lord. But, he didn't take down the high places. There's always that one little, even the kings that did good, he did, you know, he set his heart after God, he did all good like his father David had done, except, there's always that exception. And that's how you know that these aren't, this isn't the king. This isn't the one. There's something more. Except they didn't take down the high places. Uh, and then in the last king in Israel, Ahaziah, who was every bit as evil as his father, Ahab, 
And so, again, these books keep alive the idea of kings and prophets, but not yet fully realized in any of them. And they will be, of course, all combined in Jesus. And then, so on next week, um, Justin's going to take chapter, uh, uh, sorry, the book of Second Kings and bring it through the end of that. So you have a good sense now of what the overall theme and, and what's going on in Kings, generally speaking, and what has gone on in the early chapters, particularly with some of the wicked kings. Um, you see some good kings taking place next week as well. There'll be some good mentions like Josiah and how that goes down, as well as you know the ministry of Elisha, the prophet. So we look forward to that as well. And that is all. And uh, Mark, would you close us in prayer? Head up to the. Thank you, Lord, for such, uh, such an opportunity to come here, Lord, and mm. gather in your name, and also, Lord, to learn from the word. Father, we just praise you for the record that you've left us, and uh, thank you, Lord, for the sermon you've given Pat, Lord, that he can summarize this, Lord, and, and make it very understandable and also very uh, applicable. Father, I thank you for your blessing this day, and I ask you that you would be with us in worship. And Lord, that you would exalt, exalt your name, Lord, that we might worship in spirit and truth. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name.